Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Sleep, do it now! Okay, we're trying to give away some Rolling Stones tickets last day that we were giving away Rolling Stones tickets for the concert at Camping World Stadium. We want you to text in or use the talkback line. Text in 50857 or use that talkback line on the iHeartRadio app to tell us your most memorable concert experience. Best response wins the tickets. What do we got on the talkback line, KB? Yes, once again, use that talkback feature. Let us know your most memorable concert experience right now for these Rolling Stone tickets. Uh, let's see what Jason, uh, what his memorable concert was. I was about- Jason, are you okay? Is it okay? Hey, fellas, this is Jason in Sanford. Uh, my most memorable uh, concert experience, I was about 10 years old, uh, went to the races out at Speed World in Bithlow. Uh, there was a Molly Hatchet concert after. Um, they ended up having a wet t-shirt contest during, uh, and the ladies ended up going full Monty. Uh, I didn't know what the hell was going on, but it was awesome. And every time I hear Southern rock songs, I think of that day. Ooh, Jason. Mm. Jason wasn't flirting with disaster that day. <laughs> I'm traveling down the road, I'm flirting with disaster. You wow. want to you want to talk about quite an introduction, right? That's a great one, right there. Jason. I don't agree with any of that misogynistic <laughs> stuff, like wet t-shirt concept uh, contest. You know. hey, back in the day, it was a different time, different time. <laughs> All right, let's see, uh, Tony. Good morning. Let's see what he has to say from Winter Springs. My most memorable time at, at my concert was my first concert I ever went and saw. My father took me to see Def Leppard at the age of thirteen, and it was great. Somebody actually went to pass me a joint. I didn't know what it was, and my father took and put his hand in front of it and said no, <laughs> which I'll never forget. Appreciate it, fellas. Love it. Love it. His Dad father. Said no. Dad said no, but let me have a hit on <laughs> that. Yeah. Yes, Mike, that's exactly it. Yeah. He said, no, 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 uh, this is my son, but let me let me see that a little. What's Oh, <laughs> All right, Tony. All right, Tony, I know you're, you're like not eight. not of age yet, sonny boy. <laughs> Tony, I know you're eight, but you're going to have to drive. All right. Okay, I'm going to read some of these texts now. <laughs> Greatest concert experience uh, somebody texted in I ever had was in 1993. Me and my college buddies went to go see Pink Floyd uh, at the New Orleans Superdome. The concert was great, but it was everything we did before and after on Bourbon Street while we were riding three tabs of acid each. Oh, my God. You guys were tripping on acid on Bourbon Street? Good Lord. Um... Uh, Bulldog, my most memorable concert experience was when I was 15 years old in a small venue in downtown Orlando. My mom dropped my friend and I off to see my favorite band. We enjoyed the show, but the reason it was so memorable is because after the show, we were waiting outside for mom to pick us up, and the band walked right by us. We said hi, and they stopped to greet us. I'll never forget how stoned they all looked, and it broke my heart that my heroes were drug addicts. Yeah, welcome to rock and roll, my friend. 
Um, uh, my favorite concert memory. My favorite concert memory is one I played myself. Local band at the Hard Rock Orlando. I wasn't uh, in the concert myself, really. It's just that we got access to the green room. My name is signed on the wall among countless legends, d- directly under Eddie Van Halen. Wow! Wow! Uh, let's see. My favorite concert I ever went to, and I've been to a lot of country concerts, was actually John Conley here in Orlando in the nineties. Um, I'm busted, and we would put a big milk. He would put a big milk jug on stage with him to donate to his charity, and you go up and drop whatever you want in the bucket and he would shake your hand and then thank you. He had a bunch of hits. Um, show was only $5. John Conley. What did he sing? I'm a common man. I drive a common van. I think that's John Conley. Mike, I went to one country concert. I went to a country super fest. I think it was at Everbank, Mike. I think it was in Jacksonville back in like 2016. Like my Mm -hmm. first country um, concert, and of course, they had the who's who of country artists there. It was like an introduction for me. And when I tell you, they were partying, Mike. They were partying. There was an old school southern dude in front of us. He pulled a little personal of whiskey out of his cowboy boot and passed it back. I looked at my friends. I was like, this is questionable. But we're taking it because we're here, baby. <laughs> Uh, finally, the greatest concert I ever went to was called The Great Went. I drove 23 hours from Atlanta to, uh, to Maine to see the band Fish. 500 minutes of music, six sets, including perform- performances at 3 a.m. There were discos, drum circles, fire breathers, orchestras, and it grossed roughly $4 million. Ooh. Over 70,000 people attended the concert on the Loring Air Force Base. It was easily the best most impressive performance I've ever witnessed wow. by a band. Well, you've probably never been to a Springsteen concert. I went to the, saw the Eagles at the Amway Center way back when. That was unbelievable. That's probably my, my favorite concert ever. All right. Uh, big, big news in college football yesterday. No, we're not talking about Tennessee being under NCAA investigation again. We're talking about Florida State finding a filed an amended claim in its lawsuit, essentially accusing former ACC commissioner John Swafford of nepotism, of using the ACC's TV negotiations to help benefit his son, who was working at Raycom TV at the time. Uh, Andrea Adelson wrote about it at ESPN.com. So let's welcome in the best college football writer and broadcaster in the business, in my opinion. I'm starting a campaign shortly to get her on ESPN game day. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Andrea Adelson. You can read all of her stuff at ESPN.com and hit her up on Twitter at ESPN. Andrea, how are you this morning? I'm great, Mike. How are you? Thanks for the kind words, as always. Doing good, Andrea. Yeah, Florida State and the ACC, quite frankly, have taken off the gloves in this lawsuit battle between the uh, between the two. The ACC uh, several days ago uh, uh, filed an amendment trying to bar FSU's uh, leadership from having any decision making prowess in the ACC. And then the the Seminoles came back. When was this Monday night? They filed this complaint about John Swafford, the former ACC commissioner. Can you explain 
sort of in a Cliff Notes version what this entails? This reminds me of that uh, meme of the cat and the lady and they're pointing at each other. I mean, this is what it feels like right now is going on between uh, Florida State and the ACC. Look, Florida State was not happy that the ACC decided to file, file their own lawsuit uh, against Florida State, and uh, they weren't happy about the ACC trying to strip them of committees and voting rights and all of that. So. You're right, Mike. They've decided to take the gloves off. And in the amended complaint, they go ahead and name John Swafford and his son, Chad, who did work at Raycom, as you mentioned. In the first lawsuit, they didn't mention anybody by name. But now they've decided, you know what, we're just going to start airing the dirty laundry. And essentially, Florida State's lawsuit hinges on the fact that they're unable to do business as they see fit because the ACC has screwed up their fiduciary responsibility to league members. And the way that they screwed up the fiduciary responsibility is by doing these horrible media deals that have not maximized the ACC's potential on the television side. And how did they do that? You had John Swafford making sweetheart deals to keep Raycom in business. And oh, by the way, who works for Raycom? His son. And so they lay all of this out in the amended claim uh, point by point. It goes on for pages uh, when we're talking about the relationship between the ACC and Raycom and how that became entwined with a deal that they had with ESPN. Now, the question, of course, Mike, is what does that have to do with trying to get out of the grant of rights, right? The grant Mm -hmm. of rights is a completely separate document from the television documents, right? You can screw up television media rights all you want, but that is a different entity from the grant of rights. And that's what is at the heart of all of this, is trying to get get out of that grant of rights before 2036. And I'll remind everybody, the grant of rights, which Florida State signed and every ACC member signed, gives their media rights to the ACC through the length of the contract, which is through 2036. So I don't know how much airing all of this dirty laundry gets to the question of trying to break the media rights, the the, the grant of rights deal, but I think Florida State is trying to prove that the ACC messed up their responsibilities to league members so badly that should be enough to get out of it. I have to admit, all right, (laughs) I've, I've said this, I've written it in the past. I think there's way too much nepotism and cronyism in college sports. We've seen it all the way back to Bobby Bowden hiring his son Jeff to be a bad offensive coordinator at Florida State. We saw it at Iowa, obviously, with Kirk Ferenz hiring his son. It would not surprise me at all if John Swafford um, used his position to help benefit his son, and again, I'm not. A, I don't know all the facts in this, but it, based on what's happening, what's happened in college football, it does seem like there's a lot of cronyism going on, uh, Andrea. Yeah, there is obviously, and you just pointed to some of those examples. There are a lot others throughout college football, right? Um, but in this case, you know, this has kind of been an open secret. You know, people have known that. John Swafford made deals um, that could potentially help his son. And the thing about Raycom, and, and this is outlined in the amended complaint, you know, Raycom was this giant 
um, you know, back in the day, uh, broadcasting both the SEC and the ACC. And once they lost the ability to broadcast the SEC, because that all went to ESPN and to CBS, uh, they were in severe financial uh, trouble. Uh, And the only way to really save that network was for them to get some sort of partnership deal with the ACC. And John Swafford understood and knew what that relationship was between the ACC and Raycom, right? There's history there. There's tradition there. Um, And so when he went to ESPN in 2010, again, this is all in the complaint, and folks can go on the Leon County website and check it out because it's all out there, uh, up there and uploaded. Um, He basically told John Skipper, and this is documented in multiple uh, media articles from back in the day, he told John Skipper, who was the head of ESPN, we need to have Raycom as part of our deal. Um, And ESPN agreed. And that carve-out that began in 2010 saved Raycom. uh, And and obviously, John Swafford's son, who was working there at the time, was able to climb up the ladder. He still works for Raycom Sports, by the way, but all of that now has become sub-licensed and as part of Bally Sports and and all of that. So there continues to be a relationship to this day because of the carve-out that was made in 2010. And because of that, Florida State argues that member schools have lost millions and millions of dollars from their Tier 2 and Tier 3 rights, which go to, to Raycom and have been sublicensed out. Um, and that, therefore, has hurt league schools who are now unable to compete financially with the Big Ten and the SEC that have now raced further ahead uh, when it comes to television money. Let me ask you this, Andrew. You say you don't know if this is going to help Florida State get out of the grant of rights deal. Now, the, all of this stuff with Raycom and you know the, the side deal with ESPN and all of this stuff, this happened back in, I think, 2010 or something. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, didn't FSU still sign the grant of rights back in 2016? I mean, yeah. Yes. Uh, not only did they sign the grant of rights, in 2016, they signed it in 2013, uh, which was the first iteration of the grant of rights. And you'll remember, Mike, and, and I know the listeners, especially Florida State fans, will remember that the whole reason that the ACC pushed to have a grant of rights to begin with is because a, you know, they lost Maryland uh, it, it, during that wave of of realignment, but b, Florida State was making a lot of noise about going to the Big 12. And the ACC did not want to lose Florida State. And Florida State is obviously one of the most valuable members of the ACC from a brand perspective. We see what the television ratings look like. From a football perspective, they need Florida State. So back in 2012, when Florida State was making all this noise, you know, realignment was going on, maybe we'll go to the Big 12, their board chair came out and said it. Um, the ACC knew they had to do something. And so they decided, you know, we're going to do this grant of rights. Uh, this was something new uh, in the industry at the time, and it would be a way to keep the ACC together, right? We don't want the ACC to break apart. We want the league to stay together. Let's do the grant of rights where every school in the ACC agrees that the ACC has control of our media rights. They went in person to Tallahassee to convince the president at the time and the athletic director and the board chair, you need to do this. It's best for the ACC and Florida State to stay together. 
and they did it, and they signed it, and they did it again in 2016. So ultimately, the ACC's argument is you signed the deal, you signed it two times, and oh, by the way, you've taken hundreds of millions of dollars from us in the time that you've been a part of the league. Uh, so what's the problem now? And I think ultimately that's what Florida State's going to have to answer in court. Andrew, you've been covering the ACC very closely. I, I'm just curious, back when they signed the, the, the latest grant of rights in 2016, or even may, maybe back in 2013, at the time, I mean, now we know it's a bad media deal, but at the time, did every was everybody, did everybody think it was a good media deal? I mean, Yes. At the time, everyone thought it was a good idea to sign the grant of rights for this long because they wanted to keep the ACC together, right? I mean, you saw what happened in the wave of realignment between 2010 and, and 2012 when you had movement uh, across the conferences and people thought, well, the ACC, are they going to be stable enough, right? The Big East broke up um, and, and people thought there were going to be mergers and all this. And so at that time, it felt like we need to do this so that we can ensure our security moving forward. Then again, in 2016, the whole reason that they did it was because they wanted an ACC network. You know, they were feeling behind because the SEC had their network and the Big Ten had their network. And so the league schools were told the only way we can get our network is if we make this television rights agreement with ESPN, plus we sign this grant of rights so that we can stay together this long. The problem now, in hindsight, is that they are tied to ESPN through this television deal for a long, long time. And it's very difficult to revisit and reopen that television deal to figure out a different way to make more money in it. There are look-in windows, one recently passed, and ESPN took a look and said, we're good. We're we're not going to give you any more money. And so ultimately, because they're tied into this, this rights deal, they don't have a chance to renegotiate the way that the SEC and the Big Ten obviously have. And so that has put them at a major disadvantage. So at one point when they signed it, this is good. We're going to stay together. But now, in hindsight, what were they thinking signing a deal that lasted as long as it has with very incremental increases in television revenue when we look at what's happened with the market and with the SEC and the Big Ten. So, yeah, in hindsight, it looks really dumb that they did this for a 20-year period. But at the time, it looked like a great deal because they were staying together. They were getting an ACC network. They were getting a boost in their television revenue compared to where it was. And they felt that that was going to be enough to keep the ACC uh, solvent uh, and one of the elite conferences now, of course, it doesn't look that way at all. Sounds like some of the stocks I bought, Andrea, in my past. Hey, hey, they look good at the time, then they go down, and you, you can't you can't just give them back. Right. <laughs> so, last thing while we have you, Tennessee under NCAA investigation again for NIL violations. The school chancellor wrote a nasty letter to the NCAA essentially saying, that, you know, these rules are nebulous and there's a lot of chaos out there. Um, Florida State's been nabbed for NIL violations. The Gators are under investigation for NIL violations. 
Don't these schools know that there are rules, even if, if everybody may be doing it? Don't you still have to follow the rules? rules mike i mean ultimately that's the question right because you can't you can't use nil collective money to induce players to come to your school okay you can give it to them i guess once they get there but not not to induce them to go there not to induce them to go to school right that that is that is correct how many people are following that rule because we're how many people speed how many people speed on the interstate andrea and a few get caught some don't most don't I don't speed, Mike, so let's just tell everyone out there I am a rule follower. But look, here, here's the thing about it. Um, yes, I think what's at the heart of this question for Tennessee is whether these boosters got involved to give private flights to a recruit while he was being recruited. That is absolutely against the rules. And that was against the rules before NIL, right? Like, right. boosters weren't allowed to do that sort of thing. So I think that's what's been reported. I don't know if that is accurate or not because, again, there hasn't been uh, a, a definitive notice of allegations that have been sent to Tennessee. So right now all of this is speculation. But, you know, a lot of this hinges on whether these recruits are getting this money before they get to college, right? Or if schools are arranging meetings, which is what Florida State got dinged for, um, with NIL collectives. You're not, you're not supposed to do that. And that part of the rule is definitely clear, right? But what is not clear, because the NCAA has refused to actually put in guidelines, it was up to the states to do that because the NCAA wasn't doing anything. And then now they're coming in and saying, well, hold on, everyone. Everyone's mad. Everyone's mad about this NIL. We got to do something about it. So now it seems like they're going after everybody when really they've taken a backseat to all of this, which is why you see the anger from the Tennessee president and what she sent to the NCAA. Ultimately, though, you're right. It feels as if the NIL situation has been used in recruiting. And it's not just Tennessee. It's not just Florida. There are a lot of different schools out there that it appears may be doing this um and so the ncaa feels like all right well now we've really got to crack down because we're seeing all this stuff out there we're hearing complaints from schools not just with this with the transfer portal as well um and they probably feel the pressure to do something but in my view they should have done something two and a half years ago when this was coming down the pike they could have made it very easy on everybody by very clearly putting in guidelines and stipulations but they didn't they let the states do it first now they're trying to go to congress it's a complete mess um and i think that's why you have seen this anger from schools it's because the ncaa has been so passive about this until suddenly now they're not and they're being very aggressive about policing it she is the best in the business at covering college sports check her out at espn.com andrea we always appreciate your insight and information thank you Straight ahead, the blast coming your way on Open Mic.